Over the years, we have talked quite a bit about Roald Dahl on the podcast. We haven't shied away from his problematic legacy. We have also talked quite a bit about scary things. And we haven't shied away from the fact that I am generally not the biggest fan of them. On episode 206, we bring it all together with a conversation about The Witches, which was written by Roald Dahl and published in 1983. In it, an unnamed young protagonist becomes aware of an international underground network of witches who are on a mission to rid the world of all children. Unfortunately, the boy finds himself in the same hotel where a meeting of said witches is taking place. And as you can imagine, chaos ensues. While he is turned into a mouse, he manages to escape the witch's murderous grasp. And with the help of his grandmother, a former witch hunter, he attempts to take down the villains forever. People have mixed feelings about the witches, largely because of its anti-woman messaging and generally dark vibe. I didn't read this one when I was a kid, so on this episode, you'll hear me share my first-timer feelings about it with my guest. We dig into Dahl's hateful takes, chat about how best to contend with problematic creators, consider whether or not the witches is too dark for kid readers, and debate happy versus messy endings. We also talk a lot about the 2020 film adaptation of The Witches, which was released on HBO Max to much criticism. Say hello to my guest, Amanda Axel. Amanda is a West Coast transplant whose curiosity about people led her to earn a bachelor's degree in psychology. Instead of pursuing a career as a couples counselor, she wrote about one in her first novel. As the author of No Funny Business, Delia Suits Up, and the London Air Brothers series, she strives to deliver smart, sexy, funny reads. You'll often find her writing novels about fabulous independent heroines, pretending to be Sarah Bareilles at the piano, watching reruns of Sex in the City, or balancing on her yoga mat. Amanda calls Virginia Beach home, but loves to travel the world with her high school sweetheart husband any chance they get. Learn more about what Amanda is up to at www.amandaaxel.com and follow her on Instagram at amandaaxel. As always, I will also direct you to follow SSR on social media if you want to keep up to speed on what we have going on here. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find the show on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. The SWR Book Club over on Patreon has spoken, and based on their votes, we will be reading Portrait of a Thief in September. Join us and support the growth of this independent podcast in the process. As a patron, you gain access to so many other exclusive benefits depending on how many dollars you contribute per month. It starts at just $1, which works out to literally 25 cents per episode. If you join at the $5 level, where you get an invite to the book club, you are still looking at about $1 per week and $1 per episode, which is definitely less than buying coffee out. All that to say, if you love the show and want to help keep it going, please consider joining the Patreon community at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. You can also support SSR with a five-star rating or review or by sharing it with friends in real life or via Instagram stories. This episode is brought to you by the AHK Writing Community a project I started earlier this year in hopes of connecting aspiring fiction writers and sharing what I learned in my MFA program. Whether you think writing short stories could be a fun hobby or you've already written half of a novel, you're welcome in this group. I offer accountability, workshopping, prompts, 
writing advice, sharing challenges, and lots of writing discussion. All of our founding members have stuck around since the beginning, which I like to think is a testament to what they're taking from the experience. Check it out at www.patreon.com slash ahkwriters, and feel free to send me a DM if you have any questions. I can't wait to meet you and to read your work. Before we get into the episode, I would like to give a shout out to some of my favorite bookish platforms. Libro.fm is the perfect place to find your next great audiobook. It's a great alternative to Audible because it allows you to support independent bookstores instead of a giant corporation. We all rely on Amazon for a lot of things, but since audiobooks are delivered to your phone immediately no matter where you buy them, this is a perfect place to make the switch. The audiobooks you get will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O.fm, and use code SSRPODCAST when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. If you prefer to read physical copies of books, I encourage you to support independent bookstores through bookshop.org. Shop the SSR storefront at www.bookshop.org slash shop slash SSRpod for my curated book lists or anything else on your list. Okay, listeners, brace yourself for a little spookiness. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Amanda. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. So it's kind of like we're celebrating Halloween a little bit early because we are talking about Roald Dahl's The Witches. And listeners know, this might be controversial, Amanda. We just met. I hope this does not mean that we can't be friends. I do not like Halloween because I don't like things that are scary. So I tend not to make a big deal about Halloween on the podcast, which is always a polarizing decision. So I actually kind of like that we decided to talk about the witches in August Mm -hmm. before I get into spooky season and I start to pull back from all things pop culture. This feels right to me. How about you? Totally. You know, listen, we can still be friends even if you're not a fan of Halloween. I am a fan of Halloween, but I also don't like scary things. So it has to be the fun, I guess, really costume part of it (laughs) and the candy. (laughs) Yeah. So I I will say that my my feelings about Halloween might change this year because my husband and I bought a house a couple of months ago. Congratulations. for the first time, thank you, for the first time ever, we're going to have trick-or-treaters. Yes. And this just occurred to me the other day, we were driving somewhere and out of nowhere, we weren't talking about Halloween. Clearly I avoid Halloween as much as I can. And out of nowhere, I was like, oh my gosh, we're going to have trick-or-treaters this year. So come back to me in October. I may have changed my mind. I will have so much candy and I will be so ready to welcome all of the trick-or-treaters. But in the meantime, we are going to talk about the witches in August. And I'm going to say it is pretty scary and spooky, Amanda. 
Talk to me about The Witches. Why did you want to reread it for the podcast? Is this a book that you read when you were little? Yeah, so I did. I read The Witches. I want to say it was like fourth or fifth grade. And I think the reason that I loved it so much is because for some reason, I've always kind of had this affinity for magic and witches. And so I think that's why I was really drawn to it. But I really did love how it did kind of have that spooky side to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Were you a fan of Roald Dahl in general? No, I can't say that I was. Okay. So this was a standout for you. Yes, it was. Yeah. I was not, I mean, to be totally frank, I was not a huge reader when I was young until I was probably a teenager. And even then. (laughs) Fair. It's interesting. Like, I think I make the assumption, especially when I'm talking to an author and because I was such a book person, I sort of assume that anybody who writes now was. And I actually kind of love hearing from people who have made words and reading and writing their life's work that this was not necessarily something that was always a passion of theirs. Can we take a diversion from the witches for a second? Is there anything that you can share with us about like what that journey was like and maybe when you experienced that shift and why? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I mean, to be totally honest with you, it's something I'm a little self, not, I don't want to say self-conscious about, but I do think it is strange because a lot of times, yes, you do see a lot of writers who were huge readers and they knew they wanted to be a writer when they were kids. And I was not like that. I had zero desire <laughs> to, I mean, really for me, I, I wanted to be an actress, but I always wrote, for some reason, I was always writing poems and songs and short stories. And that really developed more and more as I became, you know, when I, came into my teenage years. And I never planned to be a writer. I thought, oh, maybe one day I'll write a book. And so for me, the way it sort of, and and again, I wasn't a huge reader, but I was a huge fan of storytelling. I mean, like a lot of kids in the 90s, I watched a lot of television and movies. And (laughs) didn't we all? (laughs) Right, exactly. I think I was a really mature kid. So I watched a lot more mature content. That sounds like I watched really naughty content, but you know what I mean. Like <laughs> yeah. things that like most parents would be like, oh, this is a little too old for you, you know, kind of thing. So I got really interested in, in storytelling and specifically women's fiction when I was younger. And then um, I went to film school to become an actress. And um, I realized that I just really didn't have a thick enough skin to audition. And at the same time, I was taking screenwriting classes. So you know, during that time, my instructor was really impressed with the work that I was creating. And he was like, you know, you should really do this. And he had me write reels for the students. And he was just very encouraging. And so I was like, all right, I could still work in film, I'm just going to be a writer, you know, so I don't have to audition, you know, (laughs) that version of auditioning with my book or with my writing was a lot easier. Yeah, someone told me my screenplay would sell better if it were based on a book, even if that book wasn't successful. So I ventured to write my screenplay as a novel. And realized that all the story ideas I wanted to create would be great books. And then I was just hooked. And and my first novel was that screenplay. Wow. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for sharing that story. And for what it's worth, you are not the only author who has come onto the show and talked to me about how they were not a huge reader as a kid. So you are in good company. And I just love to hear that story. So thank you for being open. I did not read The Witches when I was a kid. I was a Roald Dahl fan, which is a complicated conversation and one that we've had a few times on the podcast. Uh, Listeners, you might remember that we've talked about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the BFG, Matilda, 
James and the Giant Peach, I think that's it. But in most of those episodes, we have talked about Roald Dahl and his extremely problematic politics, mm. his horrible beliefs, particularly his anti-Semitism. And that will likely come up over the course of this conversation because it does play into some of the reviews and the think pieces that I read about the witches. Mm -hmm. But certainly wanted to mention that up front because it's important that we can hold both things, talk about how Roald Dahl was a beloved author, and an author that I enjoyed when I was a kid, but also an author who has his share of difficulties uh, as far as like how we can celebrate or not celebrate him as a human. So yeah. that's what I'll say there. It is always uncomfortable when we find ourselves talking about a book who is written by somebody like him, who is at once like this luminary in literature and also a known anti-Semite, a known bigot. But this is sort of the mission of the podcast is to figure out how to do that. When you're thinking about sort of problematic people like this, is that something that, that you contend with a lot in your life? Do you have any like strategies or any sort of like philosophies about how you approach it? Because it's something that like even after four years of doing this podcast, I'm always looking for suggestions. You mean as far as like, as far as whether or not you can really indulge in that kind of work? And like, if there's an inner conflict of like, well... Yeah, or even how to talk about that. Yeah. Or even how to talk about the creator. Like it's just... It's like a mission of mine with this podcast and with this space that I've created to just like keep that conversation open. And I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong way to do it. And I think we're all just kind of figuring it out together. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And as far as like ideas, I don't know. I mean, I think when you, when you discover a piece of art, whether that's a piece of music or a book or, you know, whatever the case may be, and then you later on discover that the creator of that art is someone that you may not want to associate with in your real life, you know, or they may stand for things that you are fundamentally against. Yeah, there absolutely does pose a challenge there. I mean, I think some of those things, I think for me particularly come up with music, you know? Yeah, for sure. Because <laughs> you're like, that's my jam. But like, this guy is not a good guy or whatever the case may be, right? And so, you know, you always hear that phrase, can we separate the art from the artist? And that's kind of the challenge. And so at the same time, you know, I feel like there does need to be in a way a separation from the art and the artist. Um, I know like even for myself as a writer, you know, so much of my identity, I feel like gets swept up into my work, but really it's not who I am, it's just my work. You know what I mean? And it does mm -hmm. somewhat reflect who I am in a lot of ways, but not all the time. My my characters' opinions do not necessarily reflect my opinions. I don't necessarily agree with the things that they would do. It's storytelling. It's not autobiography of like Amanda Axel or you know whatever the artist, right? So there is definitely that separation there, and I do think that's important to know. At the same time, then it comes down to like, well, if I'm purchasing you know these things, if I'm like financially contributing to these things, and my financially contributing to something that maybe I don't want to, you know, there's no real way to know that, you know, I don't know much about this author and his opinions on things, which it sounds like these are things I do not agree with at all, you know, or that are extremely problematic. Yeah, I will say like the thing about Roald Dahl at this point and listeners, like I would encourage you to do your own research if this is new to you. I, I think the, the, good thing about talking about Roald Dahl at this point in 2022 is that it's kind of all out there. Like we can do the reading about him. There's a lot of resources at our disposal to fill in the gaps. 
we can go into a conversation like this. We can pick up a book like The Witches with some level of like information about where he stood. And, and that makes it a little bit easier, at least for me to, to untangle how I feel about this. But listeners, like I think Amanda and I have this conversation just to show that like there is no perfect way to do it. And we're all kind of figuring it out together. And I appreciate you being part of this community being open to asking these questions and to not always getting it right all the time. All we can do is sort of put all the information out there, own the parts of it that we know how to interpret and ask questions when we can. And that's kind of where I am with Roald Dahl. So The Witches, like three of his other books, I believe, was included on this 2012 survey that comes up again and again when I'm doing prep for the podcast that came from School Library Journal. It's a survey from school librarians, as you might expect. And it's like the top 100 children's books of all time. And Roald Dahl, at least according to school librarians, and Roald Dahl is the most represented author on that list. He has four books on the list. And The Witches is of those four, like ranked relatively number three, I think. Like it's not number three on the list, but it's the third most popular of the Roald Dahl books included on that list. So like people still love him. People are still reading his books, which is an interesting thing to consider in the context of this broader conversation. But The Witches was published in 1983, and I, like I said, I never read it. And I think it's because of my aversion and allergy to spookiness. Like, I just never would have been drawn to a book about witches. I liked Halloween when I was a kid for, like, the costumes and the candy, like you Mm -hmm. were saying, Amanda. Mm -hmm. But I definitely wasn't going out of my way at the age that I was reading chapter books to read scary things. The Witches actually hit my radar more in 2020. And I don't know how much you were following this, Amanda, but... HBO Max released the adaptation starring Anne Hathaway and it was extremely controversial and so I remember it kind of crossing my my consciousness a little bit more two years ago because I was just interested in the conversation people were having about it and I was like we should definitely read this for the podcast at some point and I was trying really hard to like separate what I knew about the adaptation from the reading experience I think I did like a pretty good job mostly because I didn't really know anything about the book or the movie other than that people were mad about it in 2020 but yeah I don't have much of a history with this book so this was like my first time getting into the details of it yeah well how did you so you did reread it recently or read it recently yeah so I read it last week for the first time and was it really scary (laughs) was I terrified I was terrified um no I mean you know, I'm 20, 30. I would like that. I was like, I'm 20. No, I'm 31 years old, almost 32. And so I was not actively afraid, but I was struck by how dark it is mm-hmm. yeah, and how grim. And I, I did some reading in a few essays kind of about Roald Dahl's larger backlist and how this fits in in some ways and is different in other ways. But there is a darkness to his work in general. So I don't think that The Witches is an outlier in that way. Like he is comfortable exploring dark themes, even Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which people think of as like this fun, rollicking musical. is about like a kid who is in poverty and who is really like fighting to provide for his family. And, And the book version of that story is much darker than what we saw on screen with Gene Wilder. Right. But I still think that this was possibly the darkest of the Roald Dahl books that I've read. Almost every Roald Dahl book features a kid who's been abandoned because he's been orphaned or because her parents have left or there's been some horrific accident. So there's always a level of darkness and of a kid who's alone in the world. 
This book, on the other hand, features a kid who is not only orphaned and alone in the world, but is fighting this like global power of witches that he's learning about from his grandmother who informs him that like, yes, there are witches all over the world and it's so terrifying. And not only are there witches, but witches like exist purely to remove children from the planet. Mm -hmm. And I was not prepared for that. Like that's a pretty heavy premise uh, to go into for a book written for children. Yeah, that is strange that we were kind of reading these books as children, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, and we talk about this quite a bit, and I'd love your take on it. Like, we talk about the appeal of the orphan story and why there are so many books for kids that are about children that are alone in the world. Yeah. Do you remember reading a lot of orphan stories? Because this is an orphan story. The main character, the narrator, who we don't actually get his name, his parents are killed, I believe, in a car accident, and he ends up being under the care of his grandmother. So this does fall into that category of orphan story, although he does have a support system with his grandmother, who he's very close with. But do you remember, like, this phenomenon of orphan stories? And do you have any thoughts about why they're such a thing in kid pop culture? You know what? Yeah, because now that I think about it, so one of my favorite books to read as a child, and this was definitely an influential book for me, was called A Family Apart. I think it was by Joan Lowry Nixon. And it was basically about this this family who was a single mother, and the mother had given them up, and they were you know, traveling and to be, you know, adopted at a later date, and they really got Mm. split up. And so the series was about each of their lives and each of their adoptions. And then also we have Harry Potter, right? Like very, like, you know, we have like this mystical theme of witches, and then we have the orphan boy who lived, right? So I think it's really, I, I, the answer is I don't know why there is an obsession with the orphan phenomenon. But my guess would be, I think that family and tribe is such a huge part of who we are and what creates safety for us in the world. And so to put a character, to take a character out of that and, you know, have them in this very like situation, have them in the situation of adversity and have to overcome something big, you know, I think is what we love. That's, I think, what we're drawn to is we're kind of seeing, you know, this character with all the odds stacked against them to finally win in the end. Yeah, absolutely. I think it creates this underdog story. Basically, there's a theory about Dahl's work and why he tends to create these young characters who are in dire straits in some way. Um, And how, like you said, Amanda, that sets them up to be underdogs and then to become the heroes of their own stories. I felt like there's a little bit less of that in The Witches just because he does have help from his grandmother and from like mm-hmm. his friend Bruno Jenkins, who also is turned into, spoiler alert, a mouse. Whereas in, for example, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or Matilda, it feels a little bit more like the kids are in control of their own story. But I think what happens when we have a kid character who has been abandoned or who has lost loved ones, like it sort of strips away the, the adults that might get in the way of him, her, or them pursuing what they want and solving their own problems and they have to figure it out for themselves. Yeah. But I'm I'm going to do a quick summary, big picture of the witches for those like me who haven't read it before. Um, basically, like I said, we have this unnamed protagonist. I thought it was interesting that we never learned what his name was. He's seven according to Wikipedia, but I don't, I feel like I missed that in the book. Like I don't remember there ever being a reference to the fact that he's seven. Like I said, he's been orphaned and so he's living with his grandmother at the beginning of the book in Norway, although he is from England. And his grandma starts telling him about witches. I was like, 
I feel like she's a witch for most of the book. Like, I thought the fact that she knew so much about witches was a little suspicious. Turns out that she's not a witch. She just is a retired witchophile who has gotten too old to chase witches. But she tells him all about these witches that abound all over the world and how their number one goal is to squash children, essentially. They hate children, all of them. And he's like, okay, cool, cool. Like, thanks for the info. She gives him a list of red flags, like how you can identify a witch. Some of those red flags include that witches always wear gloves because they actually have claws instead of nails. And so they need to hide their claws with gloves. And they're bald, so they have to wear wigs, those kinds of things. This was like a little twisty for me, but like they end up back in Norway or no, back in England. Like I didn't quite understand this. It was a little circuitous, but like basically they end up jumping back and forth a bit from Norway to England. Grandma gets pneumonia and almost dies, which like nearly broke my heart because I was like, we cannot have this young boy alone in the world without his grandma. And now that we know all these witches are running around, I couldn't take it. Like I'm so happy that she lived. But instead of going on their vacation to Norway, they go to this hotel and hilariously, like, because I just love this notion that like witches, international witches have a convention. And that's exactly what happens. Like all of the sort of trappings that we're used to seeing of any other sort of like professional or industry conference are at play in this hotel ballroom, essentially. Like there's a sign on the door and all of these ladies are together discussing important business. And the boy, the narrator, gets stuck in the back of the conference room because he's playing with his pet mice. He realizes pretty quickly that they match the description that his grandmother has given him of witches. He's like, oh shit, like I'm pretty sure this is the witch meeting, like oops. And he almost gets out without them catching him, but they catch him. They turn him into a mouse. He meets his other mouse friend, Bruno Jenkins, also formerly a kid. And they end up like figuring out how to turn this spell back on the witches. The witches turn into mice and the little boy stays a mouse, which I think we should talk about, and ends up having this like really existential conversation with his grandmother about how like mice don't live as long as children. And so he like doesn't know how much longer he has left, but they're gonna fight the world's witches together. So that's the book in a nutshell. I think it's worth talking about some of the criticism that the book has received because it speaks to the larger themes. This is a very controversial book. It has been banned uh, by many school libraries and it has received quite a bit of criticism in addition to the criticism that it received when it was adapted in 2020. The primary reason that it's been so controversial is because of accusations of misogyny. And I thought I'd go ahead and read the excerpt from the book that is most often cited as like the root of that misogyny, at least by people who are trying to ban it or cancel it or whatever. Within the first like five or six paragraphs, we get this. A witch is always a woman. I do not wish to speak badly about women. Most women are lovely, but the fact remains that all witches are women. There is no such thing as a male witch. Thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) Discuss. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's funny because you know, when you're reading something or you're or you're viewing something, whatever it is, and you're just trying to enjoy the story for what it is. But if you're thinking if you are in 2022, and you're like catching these things, especially as someone who's older, because it's true, like, honestly, before Harry Potter, all witches were women to me too. You know what I mean? So I don't think that would have stuck out to me back then, you know, that I can even remember. But yeah, certainly today, And so, yeah, so I don't know if that's a statement that 
you know, is an opinion of the author outside of the book or if this is just a representation of, of his story? Yeah, I mean, I, I hadn't read anything about the book or about its reception before I started reading. And I read that and I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of interesting. And again, knowing that Roald Dahl is problematic and has had all of these really offensive and terrible, terrible views, I was like, okay, like this kind of tracks. Mm -hmm. But then I was reading more about kind of what the landscape was like when the book was actually published in 1983. And even then people were upset about it, which I thought was interesting because our threshold for stuff like this was unfortunately pretty high in the past and people were still upset. So I think the fact that it like this, the thread of the book is that almost all of the women in there are terrible or scary. I think it would have been interesting if there was like a girl kid character who right. maybe the narrator connected with, but we're only being served up ex with the exception of the grandmother, right. these women. So I guess I kind of get why it met with that resistance. And I was surprised by it, but you're right. Like when I was a kid, I was like, oh yes, like all witches are women. And even when I learned about wizards or warlocks or whatever, like that's still different than a witch. Like witches are a purely female designation as far as I knew when I was a kid. And right. so I don't think I would have second guessed it. But it is, I think it's the language around it that yeah. is so interesting. Like, he's just putting such a fine point on it. Like, all witches are women. And then right. he goes on to talk about how horrible witches are. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, at least he doesn't say all women are witches. I mean, I guess there's some silver True. lining there. <laughs> True. I love that take. A really good take. It's also interesting because a few things that I read noted that, like, there's some thought that this is like a little bit autobiographical because I think he talked about how he was really close with his grandmother. Mm -hmm. And because this boy like is never named, it's like a little, I mean, obviously like this isn't a true story unless right. I'm missing like this whole underground network of real witches and who knows? I mean, stranger things have happened in the real world lately, but I don't think that this actually happened to Roald Dahl. But I think because it feels as though it's inspired by parts of his life, there is sort of a concern that like, oh, does this actually represent some of his views? And right. again, like we don't know him, never met him, but he certainly like laid the groundwork for some people to raise their eyebrows about what he thinks about certain types of people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think when you're, you have a prejudice against a certain group of people, then obviously that makes you open for prejudice against other groups of people as well, including women. Or maybe he just had some really bad relationships and this was his way of working it out. I don't really know. <laughs> you know what it's I mean? true. Like, it's, it's so hard to say, you know, unless he's explicitly, I don't know. Did you find any interviews where he explicitly addresses this? I don't think I found any interviews where he explicitly addresses the witches. Like that criticism? I don't think so. Um, he, he has in many interviews, like, been very explicit about his feelings about mm -hmm. Jewish people, which a lot of a lot of other reviewers linked to this book as well mm -hmm. because some of the things that he said were about, like, how, um, and I say this as somebody who's half Jewish, are how Jews, like, are often, like, hiding in plain sight and, like, it's such, like, an insidious thing that mm -hmm. you, like, never know if you're actually talking to a Jewish person or not. And so a lot of critics have connected right. that with this idea that there are witches in this universe of the book, the witches right. hiding in plain sight. And you sort of have to figure out how to like 
distinguish them from quote real women and again like I say this knowing as always listeners that we are doing a very close read of this book and I certainly don't want to take away from anybody's like experience of reading the book anew with their kids or like if you have good memories of this book of course but my role on this podcast is to have these deeper conversations and to take a deep dive and these are things that have come up on more than one site like more than one person has pointed to these parallels and so I think it's worth talking about. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I hadn't really considered, you know, based on the history, but you're right. I mean, you bring it all together and then you wonder, is this is this a metaphor for something else? You know, maybe not a breakup, as I had suggested earlier. <laughs> Who knows? He, did, I think he was married a few times, so you never know. I, I also just finished last night The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. And so it's like, one of my oh, favorite like, books of all time. Oh, just like literally hours ago, finished it. And um, so I'm like, oh, maybe he had some like big dramatic breakup because he was married to at least one actress. Like Mm -hmm. he had he had quite a romantic history, but um, maybe partially a dramatic breakup, Amanda, to your point, and also some deeply problematic, hateful, bigoted views. Yes, (laughs) yes, yes. And I mean, who knows? Who knows what else? And I think like when I reflect on these types of books, especially with darker themes, and this is not obviously necessarily always true but you know perhaps he was struggling with a lot of things you know mentally that we're not aware of and that I don't know I'm not saying that's an excuse at all but I am saying that you know potentially this was his way of you know working these things out so I didn't find any quotes from him about the book itself or about how it portrays women but something that I did find was that he I guess like was especially proud of this book I think that the that the hypothesis is that he especially liked it because it's different than a lot of his work and that it doesn't have this like perfect tied in a bow ending and it's not necessarily a happy ending because as I mentioned before the main character never becomes a boy again he's stuck in a mouse's body mm-hmm. and the understanding based on this like really sad conversation he has with his grandmother is that he's going to live a shorter life than he would have otherwise because he is for all intents and purposes, like actually a mouse. And there was the 2020 adaptation, but I also read about a 1990 adaptation Mm -hmm. starring Angelica Houston, which I didn't know anything about. Apparently it was more of like a cult thing, but I guess in that book, they changed it so that the protagonist does become a boy again. And Roald Dahl was like pissed. Like he hated this movie. Yeah. Yeah. You almost wonder if um, like... What is it? Alexander Dumas would be pissed if he saw the like 2000 version of the Count of Monte Cristo, you know, because yes. they, they did change the ending of that one, too. So, yes, so true. So because you're a screenwriter, I'd actually love to dig into this, like because in 1990 they had the boy turn back into a boy. And then the 2020 adaptation, spoiler alert again for the 2020 HBO Max movie, which I feel like nobody's watching anymore because it was so controversial. But like he stays a mouse. Do you have any philosophies about like happy endings versus complicated endings and like how much license is taken in an adaptation? I mean, I think Roald Dahl was like pretty sensitive about his adaptations anyway. I know he wasn't too fond of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Right. But I just love your take as somebody who writes in both mediums. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I think that, I mean, obviously as author, I I can't speak to his 
situation at all. I can Correct. only speak. To I wouldn't like expect you to. My, my experience or potential experience, because I I have not had a film made, you know, of one of my books. Though I hope that will happen in the future. But you know, because like you said, I've done screenwriting and I also write novels. It's a different medium. And so, yeah, sometimes when you're adapting a book, you do have to change things. And obviously, sometimes that story is going to evolve and it really becomes its own thing. And I'm actually sort of looking forward to that to see, you know, what happens with maybe some of my books as they become adapted and those screenwriters develop that and what they take from it and pull from it and, you know, what they want to change and things like that. But the book is is the book but i i can understand like as an author the frustration you feel when you you know put so much of yourself into work and then someone kind of goes and changes it especially if you're not expecting it but i think and you know what i remember that i feel like that movie was on i want to say the disney channel quite a lot Oh, and so I want to I want to say that's the case. It, I think it was on syndication on some cha- some kids channel, um, but I do want to say it was a Disney channel. So I definitely don't think that would have been the case had it kept the original ending. Yeah, I think it sounds like this newer version, they stuck more closely to the book, but as a result, it didn't translate as well to the screen, which I think speaks to what you're saying, which is that like it doesn't always work to make a perfect adaptation. And the other thing that people were really bothered by in the newer adaptation is that they changed the setting. So in The Witches, like most of Roald Dahl's books, I believe, if not all of them, the setting is this like sort of timeless English European universe. We don't get the exact year, although it seems sort of like old timey in some Mm -hmm. way to us. The 2020 adaptation, they moved to the American South Mm. And they kind of tried to overlay race with it. I have not seen it, but I read quite a few reviews. And I'll yeah, I haven't seen it either. Notes. It's kind of fascinating what they did. So I, I think they had this boy who was a black boy. And we don't have any any characters of color in the book. But the boy whose name is Charlie, kind of as like, I think, a reference to Charlie of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. He lives in Chicago, but when his parents die, he moves to, I believe, Alabama to be with his aunt, who is played by Octavia Spencer. And they end up going to this hotel in New Orleans, which is this like super grand, beautiful property overlooking the Gulf of Mexico. And so I think the concern was that like the witches does feel like this very English, European, gloomy story. And it does not translate. And they also said it like post Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. So it feels like they were trying to, to talk about race and dig into race in some ways. But because... The witches like was never meant to talk about that. It just sounds like it didn't work. I I thought that the um, controversy about the movie was much more about the like anti woman sentiments. I think that was what I had heard at the time. Mm-hmm. But reading more of the reviews and like people just had so many questions about why these decisions were made. It was interesting because I just I didn't read about that side of it two years ago when it was all going on. Yeah, I gotta be honest. You're not selling this movie. <laughs> I know HBO Max is gonna. I'm gonna crash HBO Max with all the people who are gonna go watch. I know, right? (laughs) And I feel. Look, I I know that Anne Hathaway is controversial, but like I I am an Anne Hathaway sympathizer. I really am always rooting for her, and she plays the head witch in the movie. And so when I saw that, I was like, oh, interesting. 
And I saw that it was a Roald Dahl adaptation. And of course, I was doing the podcast at that time. And I was like, this is so cool. And then maybe five seconds later, there was like a negative review that popped up. So I was like, okay, like, looks like this isn't a movie I should prioritize. And I honestly have not heard a word about it. Like, I don't think I know anybody who's seen this movie. I didn't even know that it existed until you mentioned it, actually. I, it hadn't come. It, what is the title? Is it called The Witches? Yeah, I think it's called The Witches. It's just straight called The Witches. Okay. And then, so Anne Hathaway. Okay. Because, you know, I, I don't keep up with a lot of celebrity film news. Not like yeah. I did when I was a kid. Oh, I loved e-, e! News Daily when I was a kid. But now I have yeah. no idea. What is the controversy with Anne Hathaway for myself and maybe some other, you know, listeners that yeah. are not aware? Okay, so great question because it's one of those things that I remember that it was more like in the zeitgeist a few years ago and more recently. I think people are like kind of over it. But I think it was around when she was in Les Mis. I feel like people were really bothered by her Oscar speech. I honestly feel like it's this very like misogynist thing of like there's something about her that I don't quite like and I can't put my finger on it. <laughs> Which I don't understand because I was a child of the Princess Diaries who went on to be a diehard fan of the Devil Wears Prada mm-hmm. and I just like never understood that. Mm-hmm. Obviously like people are entitled to their feelings for the most part as long as they're not hateful or bigoted etc cetera, etc cetera. but like I, I never agree. understood yeah. what people were so annoyed by with her. It did feel very much like it was like Oh, she just seems so, like, full of herself. And I'm like, she's Anna Hathaway. Like, if I were Anna Hathaway, I, too, would probably be a little bit full of myself. I feel like she kind of went underground a little bit. Like, she had a baby, and she wasn't in as many movies. And it almost seems like she came, she returned, and people had forgotten about all of that. And then, sadly, I feel like The Witches might have been her big return. And The Witches was supposed to have a cinematic release But because of COVID, they ended up just bringing it straight to HBO Max. Mm. And I'm sure in the moment she was like, oh, no, this is supposed to be like my big return. And maybe because she's a mom now, she's like, I'm going to do a kid's movie. This is going to be great. She was probably so bummed. Here I am pretending to be Anne Hathaway. She was probably so bummed that this big return movie was going to be on the streamers. And in hindsight, she's probably so relieved. Mm hmm. Yeah. Okay. Anne Hathaway, things work out the way they're supposed to. I don't know if I gave you any good information, but that's sort of just how I interpreted the situation. I think I know what you're referring to. And yeah, I mean, culturally speaking, you know, we're taught, we're taught not to be full of ourselves. We're taught to be humble and not think a lot of ourselves. So sure. I get that. And she's big. And when I say big, that's a term we used to use in acting school for film is like, that's like a stage thing, you know, like you can't be too big, you know, because the camera picks up all those little things. And that's kind of her personality. It's like, she's a very big like person, at least in the spotlight. We don't know Anne Hathaway personally. I wish. I mean, (laughs) Anne Hathaway, if you want to come on and talk about your turn in the Princess Diaries specifically, I won't ask you questions about the witches unless I receive express permission ahead of time. I do think that because she's so big, as you said, Amanda, she was probably really great in this movie. And while people panned the movie as a whole, apparently she was really good in it. And yeah. um, I'm sure the like styling was really cool. And the photo, the stills I've seen of her as the grand head witch or whatever, it works for her. Like she, it's sort of Cruella DeVille-ish in a way. Yeah. So I think that was probably like something she tried, didn't necessarily work. Maybe wasn't her fault, but like I don't anticipate her going in that direction again for a little while. Yeah, we'll have to see what happens with Anne Hathaway. But you're right, she is a great actress. And I was just like watching some clips of Becoming Jane recently, which is like, I think my favorite role for her when she played Jane Austen. Yeah, she did such a great job there. 
Yeah. So, hey, Anne Hathaway, if you're listening, send me an email. <laughs> you have an open invitation on the podcast. We can have Amanda back. We can ask you all kinds of questions about Hollywood. We can catch up on our Hollywood gossip. Okay. Amanda? Yes. Catch me up because Amanda's out of the loop. <laughs> yeah. Amanda, we just need to be caught up by Anne Hathaway personally. Um, on the whole, like, how do you how do you look at this this premise of the witches now like this whole idea that the world is populated by this underground network of witches who are actively trying to kill children like there is a moment in the book when the boy is overhearing this this meeting of the witches where Anne Hathaway's character the grand witch is like my goal within the year is for all of the children of England to be gone and that's like pretty explicitly dark and I don't necessarily feel like I'm the best person to judge this because I am somebody who is sort of predisposed not to like scary things to begin with but I'm curious for somebody who is perhaps like a little bit less predisposed to that like what do you think of that like obviously when we're a kid we read things and we have just sort of the thrill of being scared and maybe we're spooked, but we know it's fake. And obviously, again, like respecting that this is a book that was written many years ago and we can, you know, appreciate it for what it was, but for the purposes of dissecting it from an adult perspective, what do you think of that premise as a whole now? Well, it is a weird premise to get rid of children and it be a children's book. You know what I mean? Like that is, that is very, that, that's very odd, but (laughs) However, you know, it's it's like we talked about earlier, you know, like we do kind of, especially as kids, you know, we like to be scared. And I know there were other stories that I think were kind of similar, you know, in pulp culture, you know, back then, like maybe like, what was that TV show that was on Nickelodeon? I forgot what it was called, but it was the one where they were like, submitted for the approval of the Midnight Society. This is, you do you remember that show? <laughs> okay, so listeners know this from episode one. Well, maybe they don't know this. Amanda, I was not allowed to watch Nickelodeon. Okay. <laughs> because my dad made us storm out of the Harriet the Spy movie when I was five years old. And he wrote a letter, because it was 1995 or whatever, to Nickelodeon. And was like, my child will never watch Nickelodeon because I'm so upset by this movie. And of course, did my little sisters get to watch Nickelodeon? Yes. Did I? No. So I missed. of all TV references that I hear from my peers because in the 90s, like, I was not allowed to watch their shows. Got it. Okay. Okay. Well, let's back up a second. Okay. Bring it back. (laughs) Anyway. I do think that a lot of us as kids do like to be spooked. I definitely did as a child, but because my imagination is so wild, I had to stop that because I, I, like, still to this day, if I'm home alone at night, I will run up to my bedroom and hop in my bed. Like... I really thought I would outgrow that and I have never outgrown it my whole life because of of the kind of things that I would watch as a kid because you kind of like to be be spooked. There's something kind of fun about being spooked. But I think like, like you said, you know, this is definitely a darker themed novel, especially for children. And, you know, some of the things, so first of all, like I'm so glad to have this dialogue with you and you definitely shared some things that I were not aware of. And so like looking at it through that lens, which is, yeah, like I'm, I'm really thinking of this book in a, in a different way. 
for sure. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad, listeners. I'd love to know what your thoughts on this book are, especially if you are somebody who has read it to like your kids more recently. Um, I know we do have a lot of listeners who have little ones at home, and I'm curious what that experience was like because I, in some ways, feel like kids' threshold for what's scary has changed and maybe has gotten higher because, like, I mean, the world is so scary and, like, they're exposed to different kinds of real-world fears. And also I think the way that kids' imaginations work, it's different now just because of access to technology and different kinds of things. So I'd be curious how kids of 2022 would interpret this book because to me, like, it's just so explicit in its darkness. Obviously, I read and watched lots of things that were spooky as a kid, even though like I wasn't a big fan of scary things. But this book is just like so clear in its stakes, which is to literally like kill all the children in the world. It's a little bit like Child's Catcher and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Not sure if that reference lands with you, Amanda, but I know that there are some listeners out there because I've talked to them in my DMs about how terrifying the Child's Catcher in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is. It's like that, but on steroids in the witches because he these witches are meant to like want to kill every child, not just the children in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Right. That's their entire MO. You know, I would be curious to hear that as well from parents who are sharing this with their children because I kind of feel like children are actually more sensitive now. Even though they have much more exposure, I feel like they're much more in touch I don't know with with their humanity really and the one in the interconnectedness of life in a different way than even we were as children and so i would be curious if if they would even be able to stand it now that i think about it like that yeah i just don't i just don't know i don't spend enough time with like little kids i for the last two weeks was teaching a pre-college writing class to like 15 to 17 year olds which was an awakening in so many ways um And I don't, I feel like I'm trying to think about how they would, based on this intense time that I spent with them, how they would read something scary. I don't quite know. I just know, I just know that they're really into rap still, like rap is still cool and they're not as into influencers and TikTokers as I thought that they might be. But I, I don't know how they feel about being scared. Listeners, if you have any insights, please let us know because Amanda and I are both curious. Amanda, I'm so glad we had this conversation about the witches. I'm so glad I finally had a reason to read it because with all the news that I was reading about it in 2020, I was curious about it and it's one of my Roald Dahl blind spots. So thank you for encouraging me to pick it up. And I think this is a really productive conversation, not only about the book, but about the author and about kind of the whole universe surrounding this story. But I'm curious what you have been reading lately, Amanda, that you would recommend to our listeners. We are coming up on the end of summer. Everybody has their final summer reading picks to get in. What are yours? Yeah, so I really, I, I discovered this author last year, and then I just kind of read all of his books. But um, his name is Matthew Norman. And he wrote this great book called Last Couple Standing, which I just fell in love with. I think if you like sort of quirky, fast read, you know, especially regarding marriage, it's a great book to pick up. I'm not sure if your listeners would be into that or not. But the book, his first book is one that I would really highly, highly recommend. It's called Domestic Violets. I don't really want to say too much about it, but it's it's so it's just so so well done. Like it just really kind of swept me away. And then I also recently, since we're on like the topic of like stuff we read when we were young, I recently reread probably my favorite like teen book, which was The Perks of Being a Wallflower by Stephen Chabowski. And yeah, it's definitely different reading it as an adult than a child. <laughs> I feel like maybe some things went over my head, or I just were I was focused on different things. But but it's still a really 
really interesting book to read, especially because it's written in letter form. And I always love to read books that, you know, are, you know, kind of skew from the traditional layout or format of writing. Yeah, we did an episode about the perks of being a wallflower, I want to say in 2019. Listeners, I'll link that. So it's been a couple of years since I reread it, but I do remember distinctly being like, oh, I did not understand any of this book. I was like, (laughs) oh, this is such like a cool, quirky, like alternative book to read. And I'm so cool for carrying it around. But I did not really understand like the depth of it. And I was so embarrassed of how ignorant I was to like the main character's trauma. Yeah. Because at the time, it like just made me kind of cool and like, quirky to read yeah being a wallflower which is it speaks to my own privilege in a lot of ways also but when I reread it I was like oh there's a lot going on here that I just missed yeah I I'm trying to remember I got it the first year that it came out and that was my first year of high school and that's why I loved it so much because there was so much of his experience that mirrored my own uh fortunately none of the horrific parts of his experience But yeah, still really, really interesting book the way it's done. Very interesting character. Yes. Well, I will link to your recommendations in the show notes, listeners, if you want to check them out. And Amanda, you have a new book out as this episode drops in mid-August. It will have been out for about a month. So tell me all about No Funny Business. Yeah. So I have to say No Funny Business is not dark. You know, it's great. It's not at all like the witches. So I need it. (laughs) Not even like close. Yeah, so No Funny Business is about this midtown Manhattan attorney, Olivia Vincent, and she's gets thrown into the zany world of stand-up comedy when she's given the opportunity to perform for the late night show in Los Angeles. But the only way for her to get there is to go on a cross-country road tour with the very handsome and hilarious Nick Leto, who's also a stand-up. But there's just one rule. No funny business. So it's, I mean, I consider it women's fiction. The primary storyline is is about Olivia's journey, you know, as a stand-up comedian, but it's very, very heavy rom-com, like super heavy rom-com. So yeah, it was just, it's, it's a fun, it's a fun read. It's a fun, fast-paced read. And if you like pop culture references, 80s music, burgers, Seinfelds, then I would definitely pick it up. Those are all things that it's hard not to love. So listeners, grab a copy. (laughs) I will make sure that you have a link to it in the show notes and on social media. Amanda, congratulations on having it out in the world. And thank thank you you so much much for taking the time to chat with me today. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for enlightening me today. I try. It's what I do. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Yeah, I try. I mean, it's a very weird specialty, but it's something that I've developed over the last couple of years. (laughs) No, it's it's wonderful. It's important. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.